Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good evening everyone. Welcome to season 2 of the Shah Harold Nightlife. So if you guys are wondering, you know where we've been last week, we took a one week break because you know we've completed 10 episodes of season 1 and now moving on to season 2, we thought about some of the topics and you know look at them and revise some of them. And today we like to present to you a topic called Welcoming the new Hijra year and the Islamic view on Hungry Ghost Festival. Now, I'm a bit confused. No, actually, I'm not confused, but I'm just trying to, you know, pick <laughs> the mind of um, me before when before I became a Muslim. You know, I was thinking like, how come now got another New Year? These Muslims are a bit confusing. Yeah, like you know, <laughs> first you got Puasa, like a New Year thing, and then. He, uh, Haji, another New Year thing. Now another New Year. So <laughs> <laughs> we always got New Year, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was also quite surprised that actually all the you know Pasa and Haji they are not New Year except for now, which is just a few days ago. We just entered the new Hijra year, which is the one four four three year. And uh, so we are happy to invite uh, Saiful Rahman to share more about, you know, what is this new Hijra year about? And also, why Hungry Ghost Festival? Okay, because, you know, it, we are just happened to enter also the Hungry Ghost Month. Uh, the Chinese over here in Singapore, they, they have this Hungry Ghost Festival where they believe, you know, the gates of uh, hell and the afterlife, you know, their the family might come back to visit them. Either like, a, they might even be a more of a, an animal or something and we are they are basically burning the hell notes to um also to give them money at the same time so they would use this opportunity to you know ask the ancestors and their their relatives for uh maybe even some blessings you know so this is the the time uh where it's quite superstitious for most singaporeans uh, those who are celebrating the hungry ghost festival so we need to be more sensitive to you know to know why they feel certain things are not right. So tonight's session, uh, we are learning this in a way to understand our neighbors better living in Singapore, you know, being a multi-religious and racial society. So without much further ado, okay, on my right, you can see Saiful Rahman here. <laughs> yeah, I just put him on the forefront. Thanks. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for joining us, Saiful Rahman. Yeah. Okay. And uh, before uh, next one we'll have uh, here up on the forefront is uh, Iskander from Netherlands. Thank you for joining us again, brother Iskander. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you guys, if you're wondering, alaikum <laughs> salam. So, okay, if you're wondering where the others, uh, they are probably going to come in when they are able to. Uh, invited two other panelists, so Rizzi is still on her way here. <laughs> Inshallah, we'll see her soon, and also Nyla Edwards. Inshallah, we'll we we'll also get to see her. So without much further ado, let's uh, put Saifur Rahman up on the forefront, and shall begin tonight's topic. So uh, Saifur Rahman, yes, would like to ask you the first question. Yeah, <laughs> the first question is uh -huh. uh, a bit confused. Like I said, you know, there's two types of New Year. Of You're very confused, guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm confused. You know, that's why today I a bit, you know, need to wear this to help me be more less confused. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, more like okay. Why um why there two calendars? Do we follow the the Islamic calendar or we follow Gregorian calendar or Singapore calendar? I don't know. Is it Singapore? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the same. 
Okey, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah rabbil alamin wassalatu wassalamu ala asyrafil anbiya wal mursalin sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wasahbihi ajmain. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh everyone and welcome to the new hijraya of Muharram. Um, so following the question that brother Fidaus asked, there are essentially two calendars that we depend on. Okay, the first one is the commonly used which is the Gregorian calendar. So this is the internationally accepted civil calendar and is also uh, known as the western or christian calendar and this calendar is based on the solar system solar calendar the sun the movement of the sun 365 days common year divided into 12 months of irregular length sometimes 30 days sometimes uh, 31 days with february having 28 days and a leap year every 4 years <clears throat> so this one is familiar because this how we uh, direct our lives that yeah, this gregorian calendar replaces the previous calendar which is what is known as the julian calendar because it was inaccurate although the gregorian calendar was named after pope uh, gregory the 8 it is actually adapted from a calendar designed by aloysius lilus an italian doctor astronomer and philosopher so that's a little bit of background about the gregorian calendar <clears throat> and then for muslims we have another uh, form of calendar which is the hijria calendar Uh, as opposed to the lunar calendar, this uh, uh, solar calendar of the Gregorian part, this is a lunar calendar calculated by uh, the movement of the moon, which began in 622 CE of the Common Era, when the Prophet ﷺ hijrah from Makkah to Medina uh, to commemorate the founding of the Muslim community. Right, because the Islamic Lunar New Year has only 354 or 355 days in this year. Compared to three six five days in the Gregorian calendar, it always catches up yearly with the Gregorian calendar. That's why sometimes you will fast in January. Uh, the next month will be December. The next year will be November. So it, it catches up in that way, <clears throat> and sometimes it overseas, right? So it does not begin uh, from first January of one of first year of the Common Era CE, but on the first day of Muharram in six hundred and twenty two CE. Before this, there was already an Arabian system of naming uh, the years. Uh, by the time the Prophet was born, the years were named according to significant events that happened during that year. So, for example, if I were to ask you, when was which year was the Prophet born? Oh, the year of the uh. Prophet. No. <laughs> the year of the Prophet. What? What's the name Some of the year the Prophet was born? Year of the Elephant. Excellence. <laughs> Why year of the elephant? Because they attack with elephants. Yeah. Because during that year, the most significant event occurred in which Abraham uh, came to attack Kaaba um, in Mecca with an army of elephants. But uh, unfortunately, I mean, Allah is the most great. The elephants stopped at the borders of Mecca, refused entry into Mecca, and and also a famous verse that you probably have memorized, Surah Al Fil. Alam tarakayfa fa'ana Rabbuka bi ashabil fil. Familiar with that verse, so yeah. it is describing the events of 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 this of this incident. So the prophet was born in the year of the elephant, and then the year the hijab was done was uh, known as the year in which permission to travel was granted. So the first thing that comes to your mind would be, what if there's nothing happened in that year? What do you call that year? <laughs> so that is the handicap of of that kind of year. So 17 years later, after hijrah, Abu Musa Ashari raised this issue. And then Sayyidina Umar, uh, who was a caliph at that time, established a new calendar era and chose the Hijra 
as the beginning of the Hijra calendar year number one. So now we are which year? Hijra calendar. 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14, Okay, so one of the mistakes when you read books, especially I'm quite concerned about Iskandar when you talk about the books that you, you know, you you, you bought and the kind of uh, historical <laughs> uh, things that they probably commented about Islam. They will say Islam began, and it, don't worry because even Muslims will make this kind of mistake. Islam began 1400 years ago, right? right. That's very common. So no, it does not. Mm-hmm. For us, Islam began all the way during the time of Nabi Adam alaihissalam. That moment of calendar was just an indicative point in time that Sayyidina Omar decided to pack to commemorate the establishment of the Muslim community. And so, uh, to make it a little bit more interesting, I want to give you a quiz so that, you know, it's participative. <laughs> And <Yay>. so to tell you, <laughs> can you name me the 12 Islamic months? <laughs> Who get it all right? I will treat him for dinner. <laughs> Let's go. So, so the first one is Muharram. Okay, awesome. Mm. The next one, next month will be what? Okay, I'm challenging. I'm challenging the the viewers out there also. Uh, run through your minds. What are the months of the Islamic calendar? Okay, so that you know, if you know January, February, you, should, you must also know this because it has implications as well. So mm. yes, you're right. Safar after Safar. Robbi al Awal. Rabiul Awal, and then of course Rabiul Awal, Rabiul Akhir. After that, uh, let me think. Ah, huh? Rabi Al Tarni. Okay, it's called uh, in, in in common way with Jamidul uh, Awal, Jamidul Akhir, and uh, then the seventh month would be <laughs> Jumada. I don't know how to pronounce the next one. Uh, Rajab, simpler. Don't use the complicating words. Rajab, and then Rajab. Shaban, and Shaban. then Ramadan, and then uh, after Ramadan is what. Heraya is what? Uh, Shawal. Shawal. And then Zulqaedah and then Zulhijjah. So these are the uh, Islamic calendar months uh, that we ought to know. <laughs> okay, so because you didn't uh, memorize all of them, I cannot treat you for dinner. <laughs> right, I got some right. You got half of it right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's quite uh, impressive. Okay. Yeah, so so that's that's the Gregorian and the Hijra year. So, um, any any other question? <laughs> oh, another question. Okay, dreaming. Uh, us. <laughs> no, no. I'm just thinking about uh, how come I can understand. Don't I mean the, some of the months? Am I? But I just happen to know. Yeah, because some. you you go you go through your day to day monthly activities. You know, being conscious of what the Muslims are doing, what they're celebrating, uh-huh. and even for this one, you know, oh, besides talking about this, so that, that means it's Muharram. You know, so you uh-huh. over so, time you 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 be you know you memorize these things. So, so is is one so, Muharram year? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, is Ghana? No. You're saying something? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. You finish, you finish, and then I ask uh, the next question. Okay. okay. Is, is one Muharram year, one Hijra, the start of Islam? 
Ah, uh, so like I said just now, so it is not. Okay, don't be confused in the right things that you find in in some books, uh, because they always refer to Islam, uh, beginning fourteen hundred years ago, uh, but Islam was not instituted by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Islam began as Muslims, you must know this. Islam began all the, all the way from the beginning of time. Nabi Adam and Islam, even in in paradise, uh, you know. So it's just addition, uh, you know, completion of the faith. Over time, through different prophets that that come through, yeah. So that's, that's something that we must bear in mind. If we admit that Islam just co- began fourteen hundred years ago, so what happens before that? Right? How can it be a natural way of life, the fitra, when it is so new? Mm. Okay. So 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 it's not. Oh, so, my sister Rizzi join us. Salam. Hello. Waalaikumsalam. Yeah. How are you guys? Good. Alhamdulillah. Uh, how's the uh, Toronto, is it cold? Um, it's getting a bit colder now. Today's the last day my sister's with me. My parents are coming here at like um, 1 p.m. Right now it's 10 a.m. So yeah. they come here and they go, no, bring Michelle back. We're going to have dinner and then I'll be on my own again. And I'll be more free because I won't be like having to take You're so home. busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But alhamdulillah, being busy is good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um. I, w- I want to highlight to you guys that essentially there are two major hijras in Islamic history. Uh, we usually think the hijra from Mecca to Medina being the main hijra. Yes, that is the main hijra. But there's an equally important hijra that happened prior to that. Right? Uh, tonight, I want to focus on that. The first hijra and this hijra is two. Anyone knows where? Abyssinia. Abyssinia. Where's Abyssinia? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Right. Right? Okay. Correct. It's in Africa. As we, you know, if you look at uh, historical excavations uh, nowadays, you'll find that actually Ethiopia has a very uh, strong uh, Muslim civilization that we don't pay much attention to. Yeah, so some, something that maybe some of you may want to read up. Okay, So as you know full well, the first and early Muslims in Mecca faced uh, numerous persecutions, some even to their death. And as a result, the Prophet advised them to seek refuge in the Christian kingdom of Aksum presently Ethiopia, commonly known as Abyssinia. This then was the very first Hijra. Mm. Okay, according to the earliest recorded history by Ibn Ishaq, there were two migrations to Abyssinia, one in the year of 613 CE and the other one two years later. The first migration <coughs> consisted of about 12 men and four women, whereas the second one would be about 83 men and 18 women. So uh, if you look at the book of history, they, you even will, will know who are these people. It, the names are uh, listed. Right, so it's a very uh, recorded account. Okay, mm. so um, okay, let me ask uh, the common misconception. So they went to Abyssinia. Who was the king? Nagus. Nagus, right, or Nagus, yeah. or Nagus, right? Now, okay, this is the common uh, mistake that we, we we most of us commit. Nagus is not the name of the guy of the king. Nagus is a title of monarch, just oh. like as uh, we we know Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not a name; it's a title. I thought like racist that nigger you said. <laughs> no, like in, <laughs> in the past, you know, these words are used, and then after that, there was connotation, and therefore, you know, it becomes that kind of word, right? But let me just explain to you that you know, like niggers is not the name of the king. I will tell you who this name is, but it is just a title, just like Pharaoh is not the name. Pharaoh is a title. So, for example, pharaohs include uh, Joseph, Khufu. The famous Habshiput, uh, Amenhotep, right, uh, and the famous Akhenaten, Tutankhamen, 
and Ramses II. So the, the pharaoh that we talk about during the time of Nabi Musa is actually most historians point to Ramses II. So here, the guy's name is not Negus. Negus is just the name of a monarch and his name is actually King Arma or Ashama. That's his name. Okay, so we just say the most common we call him King Arma. So he granted asylum to this first group of uh, Muslims who arrived there, and this list include new uh, illustrious uh, companions, uh, Sayyidina Uthman Mi'afan, who later on became the third caliph, uh, Ruqayya bint Muhammad, which is the daughter of the Prophet وسلم, and also the wife of Sayyidina Uthman, and Ummu Salama, who later on became the mother of the believers, Ummatul Mu'minin, right? Later on married the Prophet. So, illustrious people who actually went off during the first uh, hijrah. So, if you think that this was an easy feat, and that's why I, I like to talk about this today because I want people to remember the, about this hijrah, I want you to consider <clears throat> that from Mecca, they have to cross deserts of Arabia uh, quietly uh, because they don't want to be caught by the Quraysh to reach the port of Shu'aiba. At that time, the port of Shu'aiba was the port in which ships dock in order to go to Mecca for, for trade. And then they have to pay half a dinar each, and that's a lot of money at that point in time, to board a merchant ship to cross the huge Red Sea. Uh, and upon landing in Ethiopia, they have to cross deserts again in order to reach uh, on foot, in order to reach their destination. So it was an arduous journey, and this was the first kind of move, massive movement that the Muslims made in our Islamic history. All right. So during that time, the king of Aksum was at the end, the kingdom of Aksum was at the end of the second uh, golden age. So essentially, when the Muslims reached Ethiopia, uh, Abyssinia, they actually found a relatively prosperous land. Right? It was a Christian majority land. Right? So the second migration took place two years later, following the first migration. The Meccan uh, knew that they, they were on alert, that there might be this event, that they might run away, but they were not able to stop the Muslims' escape out of the city. Yeah, so they managed to find their way to Abyssinia eventually. Now, so what happened in Abyssinia? And this is the important thing. We refer to the narration of Ibn Ishaq. Ibn Ishaq is in his book, Suratul Rasulullah, uh, and is known to be actually the earliest biographer of Islam during that period. So there were a few events, and I want to separate them into two major ones. The first event was that when the Quraysh learned that the Muslims uh, could practice uh, Islam safely in Abyssinia, they decided to send an embassy to the Negus to demand the return of uh, what they call the fugitives. Right? So they selected two envoys. Uh, eventually, these two became Muslims anyway. Uh, the first one was Amir ibn al-As and Abdullah bin Rabia and gave them gifts uh, to the king and to his generals. So they appealed to the generals, arguing that the migrants were foolish youth who invented a new religion that the Meccans do not know of, the Abyssinians were never heard of. So their relatives were asking for their return back to Mecca. So that was the argument. So the king granted them audience, but he refused to hand over the Muslims because he has promised them protection until they heard their side of the story. And this is a beautiful story. Okay, so the Muslims are brought in front of uh, the Negus, King Arma, and his bishops right, to assess whether they should be released to the Quraysh or not. So the leader of the Muslim uh, contingent was Ja'far bin Abi Talib. Okay, and so he spoke in the defense. He said, we were an uncivilized group of people. God sent us 
an apostle who commanded us to speak the truth, be faithful to our engagements, be mindful of the times of kinship and kind hospitality, and to refrain from crimes and bloodshed. He forbid us to commit abominations and not to speak lies, nor to devour the property of orphans, nor to vilify chaste women. He commanded us to worship God alone and not to associate anything with Him, gave us orders about prayer, zakat, and fasting. So we believed in Him and what He brought to us from Allah, and we follow what He asked us to do, and we avoid what He forbids us from doing. So this was how uh, Ja'far, Senator Ja'far explained. And so King Arman then was saying, mm, okay, that's nice and good, but is there anything that was sent from your God directly? And so Jafar confirmed yes. And so he uh, the, the, he said it was the verse of, of, of the book. And so King uh, Arma said, okay, recite the book. And so this, he recited Suratul Maryam, chapter 19, verse 19 to 32. And this focused on the prophet and Maryam. Right? And so he recited beautifully. And you know what? On hearing these verses, the niggers wept until his beard was wet and the bishops who were hearing this wept until their scrolls were wet. And then he exclaimed, certainly this, what you've just recited and what Jesus had brought to us came from one source of miscad, one source of nur, one source of light, which is God. So he said, I will never surrender the Muslims to the Quraysh. So this is the first event. And so do you think the Quraysh were happy? Obviously not, right? So, uh, uh, you know, um, but before we move on to the second event, I just want to highlight, you know, the eloquence of Ja'far's speech leaves no doubt regarding the strength of faith and the clarity of the mission. Um, this speech serves as a reminder, uh, not just for us Muslims, but for those who are still struggling to understand the message of the Prophet, right? So essentially, which is in, in this time, the Prophet was saying, be a good person. Mm. That's the main thing. Be a good person. But how? So we go back to the speech. How? Be faithful to your engagement. Uh, mindful of your ties of kinship. Be hospitable. Refrain from crimes and bloodshed. Do not commit abominations. Do not speak lies. Do not devour the property of orphans. Do not vilify chaste women, for example. Worship Allah and do not commit shirik. Praise zakat and fasting. So on and so forth. These are the things that uh, Ja'far mentioned in, that, in, in, in his defense. So the question that, you know, for Muslims today is this, from that simple speech, whether we are living that message. Mm. <laughs> are we living our lives according to the demands of our faith? Or are, or are we living our lives according to the demands of our, our hawa, our nafs? How often do we transgress our neighbor's rights? Because all of this was about the relationship with others, remember, notice? by our actions, our inactions, through our friendships, or even at work, in front of them or behind their backs. Right? Truly, our transgressions are now, the sad part is, they are now normalized through our daily existence, such a waste in the eyes of Allah. So be inspired, go back to your fitrah, go back to your basics by understanding the message that Ja'far was re-articulating on behalf of the Prophet. Okay, so that's the first event. But it didn't stop there. The scheming continues. Right? Uh, the next day, Amar went to the niggers and said, King, these people to whom you gave uh, refuge and protection said something terrible about Jesus. You should call them, ask them what they, they, they say about him. 
And so Nigel said, okay, fine, let's hear it to be fair. So he asked them, so what do you say about Jesus? And Jaffa said, regarding him, we only say what has been revealed to our prophet. And what was that that was revealed, he asked. And Jaffa said, our prophet says that Jesus is a servant of God. And Jesus was his prof- God's prophet, his spirit and his word, which he cast into Mary the Virgin. And Nigus couldn't find anything wrong with that. So he said, by God, Jesus, the son of Mary, was exactly as your prophet has described him. So Nigus said, okay, you are thereby uh, allowed to live in peace and in, in security of my protection. He returned the gifts that the Quraysh gave him and then he sent them packing home. So the, the, the Quraysh failed in the mission. So the Muslims stayed in the land of the Nigus who proved to be kind and generous to his guests. Uh, even Jaffa and his wife Asma spent almost 10 years in Abyssinia before migrating to Medina with their three children. So they were really prosperous living there, you know, being protected because by then the Prophet has already established a community, a safe haven in Medina. So that's the short and long story of the story of the Hijra. Wow. Yeah. Have you, have you ever heard of this before? Mm, not really. Yeah, because usually people talk in the mosque, people talk about Hijrah to Mac- from Makkah to Medina, right? So I know yeah. that, and I know you probably are familiar with that. So I want to share with you something else that's less familiar, which but equally important. Right? Mm. Inshallah. Yeah. So yes. What is the bigger mosque version of what is Hijrah? Why is it important? What is what? What is Hijrah? Why is it important? What, what is what is Hijrah? So. <clears throat> Before we we talk about that, let's see why is hijrah important. Okay. Okay. So um, here Allah honors those who perform the hijrah and they are called the muhajirun. And I think in Singapore we have the masjid al-muhajirin, right? Muhajirin mosque. So muhajirin mosque are the people who migrated from Makkah to Medina. And Allah describes them as follows. In Surah At-Tawbah, Chapter 9, verse 20, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajim, he says, Al-Ladheena amanu wa hajaru wa jahadu fi sabilillah. The ones who believed, the ones who migrated, and the ones who strive in the cause of Allah. Bi'amwalihim wa anfusihim. They strive and they sacrifice with their wealth and their lives. A'adhama darajatan indallah. They are greater in the eyes of Allah, in the ranks of Allah. Wa'ulaika humul faizun. And they are indeed the ones who have attained success. This is how Allah honors the Muhajirun who give up everything, their you know their land, their their wealth in order to to run away to Medina, you know to 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 live their, their life in faith. And in the next verse, Allah says, "Yubashiruhum Rabbuhum birahmatin minhu." Their Lord to these people gives them good tidings of mercy from Him and Allah's approval. And of gardens for them wherein they will, they will enjoy the pleasure abundantly and forever. And those, so these are the kind of rewards and this kind of honor that Allah gave to people who are uh, who, who, who perform the hijrah. So throughout the history of Islam, we know that the hijrah was transitional between two major eras, the era of the Makkah and the era of the Medina. And even sometimes when you talk about verses of the Quran, we say, this is the Makkah surah, this Medina surah. And they are different in nature. Okay, so in essence, it signifies a transition of one phase to another. And what do I mean by this transition? For example, in Makkah, the focus was to worship Allah. 
And then imagine it was a more holistic view of life where it involves politics, economy, social interactions, and every aspect of Islamic life was being developed in Medina. In Mecca, from a small and secret group facing persecutions to Medina, a strong community with strong leadership under the Prophet in Mecca, regional da'wah, because just targeting the Quraysh, uh, you know, to, to accept and understand Islam. And then in Medina, it went universal. It, it, it even faced challenges and, and looked to the Byzantines up north, you know, and the Sassanites, uh, the Egyptians, and even further uh, until it reaches, you know, to our part of the world. So that's from Medina. The Hijra, no doubt, kindled the light of hope in the hearts of the early Muslims who shared a shining, shining example uh, for all Muslims in every generation to emulate. So as we experience the new year and contemplate the stories of the Hijra, make sure that the, the stories, and inshallah, I want to share with you some stories later, uh, uplift our spirits and make us more positive. Mm. Right? Hijra, in essence, it's a process of transferring to a better situation. So when Sayyidina Umar, who, who named Hijra as the first of Hijra, the first year of Hijra, why do you choose the Hijra as the, the start point? And he says, because it is the distinction between a period of truth and error. So it, it is that significant. And there are many lessons that we can learn from this titular event. <clears throat> and I, I just want to break this down and share with you. And I'm going to mix the first Hijra and the second Hijra together as a summary because, you know, we don't have much time. <clears throat> so number one, the most interesting thing I take from the story of Hijra is in terms of preparation. Right, so as Muslims, we must always prepare for the future. Like just now I asked uh, Rishi, how's life says, oh, at this time, my parents will come, at this time we go for dinner, at this time they'll, they'll go back to where they are. So today she has a plan. She doesn't like wake up and haphazardly like, oh, what, what, what's your plan today? Nothing, we just go with the flow. <laughs> Muslims cannot go with the flow. Okay, here we note that prior to the Hijrah to Medina, the pro prophets mm. had two prior uh, meetings with the people of Yathrib, of people of Medina at that time. Okay, in 620 common era CE, he met with some members of the Banu Khazraj at Aqaba in Mina. And this is an important place. So if you go for Umrah, no, Hajj, Umrah doesn't have this. When you throw the Jamra, you will end at the end of the Jamra, and then you usually uh, turn back and go back to your tent. But if you just go up straight on your right, those are the hills of Aqaba. And that's where the Prophet secretly met with the people of Medina. So there he taught them the basics of Islam, recited the Quran, and they were so impressed by it that, that they brought seven more people the next year to meet the Prophet. And what was the essence of this uh, agreement that the Prophet made with them? Number one, to accept the Prophet, to worship Allah, to renounce uh, sins including theft, adultery, murder. And so this became the first pledge of Aqaba. At their request, they wanted a teacher, so the Prophet sent Mus'ayyib bin Umair to teach them Islam in Medina. In the following year, a delegation double, triple the number of 75 Muslims consisting both of the tribes of Aus and Khazraj, the, the tribe that were competingly fighting in, in Medina, uh, restated their affirmation to the first pledge of Aqaba uh, and, and, and promised the Prophet they would provide him full support and protection if, they, if the Prophet moved to Medina to become their arbitrator to reconcile these two tribes. So this became the second pledge of Aqaba. And it was a religious and social-political success. 
that paved the way towards the migration. And and because of that pledge, the Prophet that encourages uh, you know, the, the, the Muslims uh, to migrate to Medina. And within a span of just two months, nearly all the Muslims have migrated to that city. Right? So you see, it was not a haphazard plan. It was not a hijrah out of desperation. Like normally when you hear in the, you know, at the mosque, some of the Ustads are talking about. No, it's not. There was a careful planning. In reality, it was a well-executed plan to move and thrive in Medina. So in Islam, we're encouraged to always think of the repercussions of our actions and decisions for the hereafter. So unlike, example, our insurance agent, they always talk to you, okay, what's your 20 years plan, 30 years plan, let's make you know, that money uh, you know, so that you're covered. Islam forces you to plan even more Islam forces you to plan for your next life. That's how progressive and proactive the faith is. And that's why I, I, I love it. So as you know, I used to work in the Shara Court and sometimes you know, I conduct counselling as well. Sometimes it amazes me when I see people come to me to get married and upon further inquiry, they have no five-year plan, no 10-year plan, nothing. No planning at all how to navigate the family to success in this world and hereafter. You can't just bite your tongue and say, I depend on Allah. <laughs> you need to plan. <laughs> you need to plan daily even. You need to plan with my education. Okay, do I stop at Polytechnic? Do I go to university? After university, do I go to do masters? Do I do? So if I want to do all that, I must make sure that the finances are in order, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, do I get scholarships and all that? So this, this all needs planning and Islam encourages you to plan. So that's lesson number one. Beautiful lesson. Right? Number two, we learn the lesson of tawakkal. And this especially exemplified by Sayyidina Ali. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that, you know, uh, before the Prophet uh, Hijrah, he asked Sayyidina Ali to s- sleep in his bed. Knowing full well the events that was going to unfold, the tribes were all queuing up outside, waiting to uh, ambush the Prophet in his bed and kill him. Right? So Sayyidina Ali knew this. He didn't... He didn't like uh, hesitate. You know, if I said, Fredos, you know, can you sit on my bed? And then there'll be like seven people waiting at the door about to kill you. Would you like, would you sit on my bed, Fredos? Of course, we shall permission. <laughs> you, said, you, know, you want to die, you die alone, uh, probably, right? <laughs> no, no, inshallah. Oh. Hey, action, action. <laughs> In theory. <laughs> While his enemies were outside, and so what the prophet did was the prophet just walked out, took the took the desert sand, and say in Surah Yasin, "Wa jaana min baini adim sandang, wa min khafim sandang, faalishainahum, faumla yubsirun." And we have put before them a barrier, behind them a barrier, and covered them so they do not see. And and they did not re- they did not realize the prophet actually walked out. Some narrations say they were sleeping. Some just like blur didn't see anything, and the prophet was in safety. And even Sayyidina Ali in the end was safe at, by the end of it. So, you know, I used to travel quite a lot and sometimes I bring people to join me in my travel. So, remember this. Mm-hmm. Before you reach any, any immigration officers, right? read mm-hmm. this one. Chapter 36, Surah Yasin, verse 9. Just read maybe 3, 4, 5, maybe 10 times or whatever and then inshallah, clear. Oh. Yeah, right? that so was this one, one life tip. Oh, I think, Fidoz, you remember? I mm-hmm. taught this in class before we travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we brought like 65, 85 people and all cleared customs with no problem in Europe. Nobody saw the diamond ring I carried. Also, so diamond ring? 
Yeah, lah. Proposal and explain. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so, Allah did not just... Lesson number three. Allah did not just elevate the muhajirins, but also the ansars. <clears throat> the ansars are the people who help those people who migrated to, to, to Medina. So, Allah says, in Surah Al-Anfal, verse, chapter 8, verse 74, He says, Bara'udzubillah minah syaitanin rajim, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَهَاجَرُوا وَجَاحَدُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ But those who have believed and those who migrated and fought in the cause of Allah. وَالَّذِينَ أَوَوْ وَنَصَارُوا And those who gave shelter and helped them. أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ حَقَّهُ These are the true believers, the true mu'mins, Allah mentioned. لَهُمْ مَغْفِرَةٌ وَرِزْكُنْ كَرِيمٌ And Allah is most forgiving and will provide us, them with noble provisions. And this you will see later, mashallah. You know, exemplified in one of the examples of the Sahaba. Yeah, lesson number four, building of mosques. Before this, there was only one mosque, Masjid Nabawi. Um, sorry, even before this, there was no mosque. <laughs> It is to Hijra that we begin building mosques. As not only places of worship, but it's a place where Muslims gather for various purposes, akin to sort of like uh, the Muslims' community center with the thriving of activities, the building of mosques began during this period. The mosque became the nerve center, the heartbeat of the nascent Muslim community. That's why it is important that we keep the spirit of a mosque alive, not just as a place of worship, but as a place for Muslims to gather and discuss their community issues. So the first of this mosque wasn't in Medina, It was along the way to Medina. Is called is the one at Kuba, which we always ziarah visit when we perform Hij, Umrah, or Hajj. You always bring us there. So it is described as the first mosque built on the pillar of Taqwa. First mosque built on the pillar of Taqwa. So, mashallah. If you ever get a chance, do visit and pray in Masjid Kuba because even the Prophet Sallallahu worked in carrying the stones to build this mosque. It's wow. it's a really beautiful mosque. Yeah. Don't just go take photo and go. Eh? Insist, tell your ustaz, ustaz, I want to pray in there. Even if it's just five minutes, just go and pray. Okay, lesson number five, humility. There are subtle lessons to be learned from the hijrah of the Prophet and Sayyidina Abu Bakr. Because eventually, the last one to go was the Prophet and Abu Bakr. And this highlights the humility of this man. Number one, he always takes turns with the Prophet. He alternates between moving to the front, moving to the back, so that, you know, it doesn't uh, burden the Prophet to be a leader all the time. And upon reaching Medina, when the people mistook him because he was better dressed than the Prophet, he came down from the camel and insists that the Prophet stayed on the camel, gave his scarf, and then he was the one who carried the camel. So people know that he is a servant, that is the, that is the master. That's how humble he was. Second, When they were hiding in the cave along the way to Medina, Abu Bakr even cleaned the cave before the Prophet entered. Okay, as a, as a sense of service. Third, when the Prophet was taking a nap on his lap, I don't know whether you have heard of this a, a miraculous story. So he, the, they took turns to sleep. So the, uh, Abu Bakr was sitting with his cross leg and the Prophet put his head on his lap and the Prophet slept. And then guess what? A snake appeared. Mm. So if I was sleeping in your lap, <laughs> okay, Iskandar, if, Iskandar, if I was sleeping in your lap, a snake came and about to mm, bite you or me. What would you do? I would let the snake bite me so I don't wake you. 
Action. <laughs> All of you action, ah, in theory, ah. In real life, don't know whether you run away, don't know, you know, go where also. I don't know. So, Sena Obaka just kept still and the snake eventually did bite him with his poison. Right? And then, and then you know how the prophet woke up because it was so painful and he didn't want to move. He didn't move. He stayed still. And it was so painful until he teared. And so his tear dropped down the prophet's face and the prophet woke up and thought it was raining. And saw Abu Bakr crying. Why are you crying? Oh, the snake bit me. Why didn't you wake me up and why don't we run away? You know, the prophet, then he said, I did not want to disturb your sleep. Subhanallah. Due to that adab, due to the respect and humility that Abu Bakr possess and manifest, in order to protect them both, Allah then assist them. And the prophet, using his saliva, cured Sayyidina Abu Bakr's uh, uh, poisonous thing on his leg. And it's been said that the, the descendants of Abu Bakr will always have that mark on their feet as to commemorate this event. Right? Mm. And, then, and then, not only that, Allah gives a, send a bigger help. Send a spider, the most humble, small animal that we, and we usually, like when you say spider, we, we kill it. Okay? Don't ever kill animals, even ants. If they, ha- they are there, just push it away. Okay, the spider then spun its web, cover the entrance of the cave to show that as if for a long time nobody has entered it. Even the Quraysh, okay, this is another beautiful story. On the way, when, before they reached the cave, there was this uh, like Superman, it's called uh, Suraka. It's one of the best of the Quraysh. Chase them with a horse. And then with the du'a of the Prophet, the horse kept falling apart and then even sunk in the desert. And the dust burnt Suraka's face. The dust. So Allah, Allah, Allah said this, and it's beautiful. He says in, in Surah Tawbah, verse 40, he says, If you do not help the Prophet, Allah has already helped him. Subhanallah. Right? So he doesn't, he doesn't need us to help. But if we help, that means it's really a you know, bonus. So the outcome was really determined. The question is, through this event, I want to ask you is, how should we react in the meantime? When faced with life challenges, look at into how we behave, how we react, how we uphold the spirit of tawakkal. Instead of complaining and whining and finger pointing to someone else for those mistakes. And the last of these lessons I want to share with you is to have conviction in Allah's promise. So the Hijra con- uh, displayed this great faith in Allah and His promise. Okay, let's go back to the hijrah of the Prophet a little bit with Abu Bakr. He was so frightened when the, when the armies came and they actually went all the way in front of the cave. And you know, and then, the, and then they were saying, well, okay, should we check this cave? And then the, one, of the, one of the fellow armies said, well, there's a spider web. Like, obviously, no one has entered this place because it's like totally covered. And so Abu Bakr was saying, I saw the feet of the enemies very close to us. When we're in the cave, he said, Ya Rasulullah, if one of them were to even look down at his own sandals, they would have seen our legs protruding from the opening of the cave. And just listen to this, subhanAllah. When you're alone, when you're down, when you needed someone and nobody come to you, remember this. The Prophet replied and he said, Ya Abu Bakr, don't worry. What do you make of two, him and Abu Bakr? When Allah is their third. <laughs> My goose pimples <laughs> really go up. <laughs> what do you make of two when Allah is the third protecting us? 
So indeed, Allah protected them and rewarded them safety until you know they they, they attain victory and they reach uh, Medina. Hmm. Okay. And the last I want to share with you uh, lessons of brotherhood through Hijrah. The Prophet established a beautiful uh, strategy uh, to 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 cut off the you know I'm Medina, you are Makan, I'm high class, you're low class, or whatever it is. Once the Muslims reach there, he paired. Every muhajirin with an ansar. They have a buddy-buddy system. And he made sure that they are, one is muhajir, one is ansar. Okay? Because the, the muhajirin migrated to a totally different city, a new culture, a fresh territory. They have not experienced this before. They have to start afresh. That is why the Prophet, acknowledging this difficulty, paired them up. Okay, let me share with you, as a last point, one story of the companion which was truly inspiring. And his name is Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, and he's one of the ten promised paradise. Okay, he obviously when he he had nothing, and so as usual the prophet paired him up, and the prophet paired him up with a Madinite, which is Saad ibn Arabi. He is he was so generous. He offered to split everything to half: his house, his wealth, his property, his bank, his bank account, everything. And he had two wives, and he said, "If you want, I will share my wife. I divorce one of them, and he marry you. She marries you." I mean, like, where do you find such generosity? Even willing to give away his wife. Iskandar, so if, I, if you come to Singapore, I said, Iskandar, you can have all half. This is my bank account. This is my, my whatever, whatever, my wealth. Okay, half, take. <laughs> Including my, my second wife. You want or not, Iskandar? <laughs> Go on. Okay, let's say, okay, let's not, let's not talk about the wife. Lah. Just the money thing. You don't want? Good boy. <laughs> Good boy. I cannot handle <laughs> I will use it within a day. <laughs> yeah. Wait, that means you assume they have a lot of money in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Abdurrahman ibn Auf, instead of saying yes to get an easy way out of this through the generosity of his buddy, he said, no. Instead, show me where is the market. And so he went to the market, bought and sold things, quickly made profit. Not long later, he accumulated a gold nugget which he used as bridal money for his wedding. And eventually, he went on to become one of the richest men in Medina. Totally inspiring. There are many, there are many lessons. I mean, I can talk about this the whole day, the whole night. But we'll just stop here for a moment. Inshallah, as you reflect and you read up through the story of Hijra, you will find your own learning points. Hmm. Mashallah, yep. thanks for sharing all the lessons from we can learn from Hydra. Of, I yeah. mean, it's probably going to be a lot of lessons also. Inshallah. Um, but inshallah, we have more time. We can learn even more. Um, are there any other types of Hydra besides the ones that are in Mecca and Medina? To Medina. Okay, good, good question. Are there any kinds of Hydra? Right, so let's look at the Hydra that has been defined by the Prophet. <clears throat> so, uh, and some of the scholars. Okay, so in the hadith in Sahih Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawud, Tirmizi, and Nisa'i. I mean, literally, literally all the six canonical. Okay, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "La hijratuhu ba'dul fatha." There is no hijrah after the opening of Makkah. Walakin, but there is jihadun wa niya. There is jihad and there's niya intention. Okay, so, so he says there's no more physical hijrah after the opening of Mecca. But remember, jihad and yeah. So in, in Fatul Bari, 
uh, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, a, a, a famous and well-respected scholar in Islam, said, to make hijrah to something means to move it from something else. That means a physical movement to something else. And in a hadith uh, in Sunan Ahmad, the Prophet said, the hijrah is of, is of two characteristics. One of them is to avoid sins. The second is to migrate to Allah and His Messenger. Hijrah will not be discontinued as long as repentance is accepted and repentance will continue to be accepted until the sun rises from the, earth, from the west, the last day. Okay? And in other Sahih Bukhari Muslim, the Prophet said the, the muhajir, the, Im, the migrant, the immigrant, is the one who abstains from that which Allah has prohibited. So therefore, you see that a collection of a review of this hadith and, and sayings of the scholars, Hijrah is not about just leaving one's home or land, but it has a wider implication. And hence, it becomes essential for every Muslim to be an, a muhajir, an immigrant, always on the side of hijrah. And I give you two stories to example. Number one, you know, you know the mu'adhin that calls the son call to prayer in a mosque is uh, Bilal ibn Rabbah. That <laughs> the episode, the last episode before we took a one week break, right? So we yeah. talk. They talk about Bilal ibn Rabbah quite a fair bit. So Bilal reverted to Islam sometime around 615 Common Era CE after he heard the Prophet's message. Converting to Islam was a challenge, particularly for a slave, and you must have a, some that some story about that. And many of the least Muslims face ridicule and harassment from the non-Muslims once the decision is made known. So Bilal's owner, the boss, the master, Khalaf, was anti-Islam, discovered Bilal's conversion, immediately subjected him to torture. He ordered his men to take Bilal to the desert during the long hot summers where he was stripped naked and sometimes he put heavy rocks on his chest to force him to renounce Islam. He didn't. So when news of this came to the Prophet, he tasked Sayyidina Abu Bakr to investigate. And when Sayyidina Abu Bakr saw how almost to death he was tortured, uh, Sayyidina Abu Bakr negotiated for his freedom and once he got his freedom, Bilal was taken to the Prophet and Bilal remained with him, loyal to him for the rest of his life, of the Prophet's life. The Prophet passed away first, then him. After the Prophet's demise, then Bilal left Medina and went to Damascus, Syria, established to Islam there. He eventually died in Damascus. His wife and children then migrated to Ethiopia upon his death. So we see the hijrah of Bilal from a slave to becoming the first to call the Muslims to prayer. He kept on improving his life, contributing to Islam until he was so honored that his contribution as a mu'adhin, the one who calls the adhan, is more commonly known to us. I don't know about your part of the world, world, we normally don't call him he's a mu'adhin, we call him he's a Bilal. We call him by the name of Bilal ibn Rabba. Okay, and then there's another inspirational story. You, you, you must know this guy because his, wow, his story is amazing. And his name is Abu Dhal al-Gifari. Okay, Abu Dhal al-Gifari. In Sunan Tirmizi, the Prophet described Abu Dhar as follows. The Prophet actually attributed a few hadith about this amazing man. Eh? But today we're going to talk about this part. He says, there is no one more truthful that the sky has shaded and the, and the earth has carried than Abu Dhar. I mean, the Prophet talked about him. <laughs> you know, While living in the desert, news reached him that a new Prophet has arrived in Makkah. So without wasting much time, he asked his brother Anis to go and observe this Prophet and report to him what, what, what did he say. So when Anis, the brother, returned, he said, I've seen a man who calls people to noble qualities and there's no poetry in what he's saying. 
So Abu Dhabi said, what do people say about him? Uh, unfortunately, they say he's a magician, a soothsayer, a poet. So Abu Dhabi became so curious that he says, okay, you look after my family. I'm going to see for myself who this person is. So he traveled all the way from the desert into, into, into Mecca. And, and, but he exercised a great caution because the Meccans wasn't wel- welcoming of the message and of the prophet, right? So at nightfall, he got nowhere to go. He slept in Masjid Haram at the mosque. And Sayyidina Ali saw him and said, uh, you are a traveler and in the Arabian, Arabian culture, they invite them to their home. Okay, why don't you come to my home and sleep at my house? So Abu Zah slept at Sayyidina Ali's house. No question asked. He didn't ask, who are you, Sayyidina Ali? Sayyidina Ali didn't ask, what are you doing here? The next day, he just took his blogging and, his, and he, he went back to the mosque. Second night, he saw him again. So Sayyidina Ali said, hello. <laughs> okay, no hello. Like. He said, yeah, isn't it time that a man knows his home? Like literally saying, hello. You know, don't you have a house? It's actually that's what it meant in our common times, like, you know. So, but Walhasil, at the end of the day, he followed Sana Ali home and he stayed with his house. On the third night, so Sana Ali have to ask, okay, then he has the right to ask, aren't you going to tell me why you came to Mecca? And I was there reply, okay, I will tell you only if you promise me that you will guide me to what I'm seeking. And so Ali, Sana Ali agreed and I was there explained, I came to Mecca from a very far place. This, is, this was his hijrah seeking to meet the new prophet of Islam than to listen to what he has to say. Allahumma, Sayyidina Ali said, wow, I'm so happy to hear this. I know who he is. I can bring you to meet him tomorrow. And so that night, Abu Zar could hardly sleep. He was so excited that he found the right man. So when he met the prophet, he did exchange salam. The prophet read some verses of the Quran. And before long, Abu Zar said the shahada and embraced Islam. And, and then he, you know, he learned Islam from the Prophet. But the Prophet warned him, don't announce your conversion until the situation is more welcoming. But, there's a big but. <laughs> Faith was bursting in Abu Dhar's heart. Like, oh, I need to tell someone. I'm so happy. I'm so like, wow, my life is so transformed. So one day he went to the mosque and he saw a group of Quraysh, the enemies, sitting together talking. He went in their midst and he said, oh, people of Quraysh, I declare that there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Like, literally like giving the shahada in the open. And guess what they did? They immediately jumped on him, pounced on him, beat him up until he's almost uh, you know, dying. And when he was released, the prophet then asked him, why do you do that? I told you not to, not to do that. And then he said, Ya Rasulullah, I can't help it. There was a need that I felt my soul in my soul that I have to fulfill. That people need to know that I'm a Muslim. So the prophet said, okay, fine. Okay, now you can go back to your people, tell them what you have seen and heard, invite them to Allah. Maybe Allah will bring them good through you and you want you through them. And when you hear that I've come out in the open, then come back to me when the situation has, has improved. And subhanAllah, Allah made it very easy for him as more and more of his tribe accepted the message and embraced Islam through him. And this was the hijrah of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari. Truly inspirational. Yeah, so... So, what do you think of the stories? MashaAllah, it's just so inspiring. Have you heard of his companions? Words, huh? Yeah, so I hope today it will add a little bit more to your knowledge and, you know, appreciation of what the companions have gone through. InshaAllah. Mm, MashaAllah. Yeah. So, the so, question uh, I want to ask is, what can you do now <laughs> to enliven the spirit of Hijrah? What can we do now? Risi, you are very quiet today. 
Sorry, I was just listening. There's so much, there's so much to learn. So I'm just like absorbing everything. Sorry, what okay, was the question? You're with us, right? Yes, you're with us, right? <laughs> Sorry, what okay. was the question? Say it. What's the question? No, so is there is so how do you? So the question for me to, to all of you is how do you do you enliven in the spirit of hijrah in your lives now, knowing now you know the first hijrah, you know the second hijrah, you know what the companions did, you know to achieve this. So what do what can we do? Well, one of the things that's really interesting, the fact that whenever like they went somewhere, they weren't isolating their, themselves, you know. Mm. Um, but nowadays we live in like a culture where, you know, if you move somewhere, you're kind of like expected to be on your own and kind of explore somewhere all by yeah. yourself. Like I just moved into a new condo and whatnot. And, you know, there's not much of a community that, that I've been able to find here. But the fact that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was able to kind of like um, connect the people from his own place to the place from the new place, like it kind mm -hmm. of like a system and yeah. so people will not be really like left deserted there will be no like hostility or increasing um suspicion on either sides and i right. think that's like a really beautiful thing to like remember because like quite often we think that whenever we go somewhere we're kind of on our own we don't know what's up we just keep to ourselves and we just yeah. um be alone so like i guess one of the things to remember from these like hijra travels is that like we need community wherever you go and if we go somewhere new like one of the most important thing is we have to try or at least like even if like artificially try to like volunteer or try to go out of our own like comfort zones to like meet new people because otherwise like we risk like falling into like i don't know depression or even sadness or even like hatred yeah. of the new place and won't be able to adapt properly if you keep to yourself everybody will just shun you mm -hmm. right and then you say you know that weird that weird guy or girl the Muslim guy or girl, you know, whatever. So they just shun you. And it just like confirms the kind of things they hear about Islam. But if you go out and reach to them, uh, like I said, one of the greatest uh, way would be when you cook something, share with them, you know, and then they start to bring their guts down. And then, you know, they begin to understand who you are and talk to you and treat you as one of the community. Uh, and you'll find that your life has just transformed. You know, you don't, you, you know, you can even do da'wah to, to them sometimes. You yeah. know, subhanAllah. So that, I, I I agree with you. I've traveled to a lot of the Muslim communities in in in, in everywhere, Australia, um, and, and many places. And I find that the Muslims always keep themselves in, in their own place. And then, of course, then there will be crimes and all that. And people just say, you know, the Muslims are so and so and so. All the negativities will come up. But if you just open out and live with people, people will start to see like, hey, actually, they're not bad. My neighbor is a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. like a, big, a big source of Islamophobia is also, um, you know, cultural barriers and, you know, like right. the immigration thing where like where countries say, yeah, you can come here, but you have to like live like us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And when they don't live like them, like there's a huge debate and huge deals that go on yeah. about like, the tiniest, yeah. tiniest like things. For example, like, oh, like should Muslim women be allowed to be teachers or something in, in yeah, schools yeah. or whatever and like these kind of debates happen in the uk and canada and the us literally like all of like you know like the west the western world i suppose because like there's just like a general misunderstanding of each size because you know of not enough talking not enough discussion and yeah. if, you know, if the prophet was was here today like he would likely you know be able to kind of connect that and bridge that together and tell the people you know like you have to converse with people who are like muslims should talk with like you know people who aren't muslim and to show we're like hey we're not terrorists like we're, we're like yeah. human beings you know like yeah if, if you, re you go back to my ramadan episode i was saying that you know i used to cook and then they will come and then we will have this nice uh 
dinner over the patio and then you know just like talk about stuff and then bit by bit I tell them about what I do what I cannot do so they they understood and and you know I even share with you that sometimes on our road trips even they they stop and say hey time for you to pray <laughs> you know oh, oh okay thanks you know even I forgot and then sometimes like you know being Americans for example they, they just need to drink they don't drink plain water they don't drink tea they just drink you know stuff and so I said okay fine you want to drink your drink just bring your own BYOB you know bring your own bottle or whatever and you can just drink but I don't provide these things right so when you leave just clean them up and bring them with you as well so so as we as we have very uh, informal conversations over the most basic thing like food then things begin to come up that, that was actually the first time I said actually I'm a Muslim and they were like oh my god like you're a Muslim and you're a neighbor okay listen 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 you know and you know, one of the uh, best affirmation was on the day when I returned to Singapore, one of them commented and he said, hey, you know what? Uh, you guys are no different from us, actually. And I, and I want to clarify, what do you mean? You know, I know what he meant, but what do you mean? You're nice. You're a human being. Like you're, you're like us. You're peace-loving and you're doing your own thing. You know, you're struggling that like we, we are... You know, normal stuff. I said, yeah, I said, this is what a Muslim looks like. The one you saw on TV, they're all a different breed, you know. So <laughs> so they begin to accept this. And so can you imagine the next Muslim guy that came to the city, which there are not many Muslims, they would treat him differently because now they, be, they saw that a Muslim is a normal person <laughs> like them. You know, so these are some of the challenges that you you just need to to do. And and then, in my townhouse when I was living, we have this community where uh, we take turns within the members of the the townhouse to to cook once a week and organize activities. And so some activities will be like because I'm, I was a musician, so I was jamming, and they were like, "Wow, Muslims also play music," <laughs> you know, like, uh, "Yeah, why not?" <laughs> you know. Uh, and then we we do my my roommate uh, does underwater hockey, and we do roomy poetries and all that. They were, they were just like, "Wow, my life is enriched with all these different experiences from someone who's different from me, but yet the same." So maybe you know some hints, maybe yeah, you can do. Okay, so. <clears throat> So the question I asked was, what can we do now with the concept of hijrah that uh, we, have, we have learned? So there are really two types of hijrah. One is the physical hijrah, and the other one is the moral hijrah. Mm-hmm. The physical hijrah refers to the movement from Makkah to Medina uh, 1,400 years ago over a distance of about 500 kilometers, which took the prophets about eight days to reach. The moral hijrah, I think, is more relevant and more important for us in these times. It means to abandon something to something which is better or permissible. So in Hadith, in Sahih Bukhari, Muslim, the Prophet said, the muhajir is the one who abandons what God has forbidden. So just as the Prophet's hijrah to Medina was transitional between the two states, a state of weakness to a state of security, for example, the hijrah of the soul is likewise a transitional line between human weakness for sin to a position of security from sin, a state of disobedience to obedience. So just to belabor the point, it is a flight for the sake of moral refuge from all forms of evils and corruption. It is a spiritual leap from oppression to justice, from cruelty to harshness, to mercy, to compassion, to grace, from intolerance to forbearance, from indulgence to moderation, from miserliness to generosity, from selfishness to charity, from heart-heartedness to empathy, from pride to humility, from sin to repentance, so on and so forth. 
it is most of all a return to man's natural disposition of good. And that's what we call fitrah. And it's probably best surmised by Prophet Ibrahim in Surah Al-Ankabut, chapter 39, verse 26, when he says, Inni muhajirun ila rabbi. I am fleeing. I am migrating to my Lord. Hakim, for he is the most almighty and the most wise. Okay, so what can we do now? The secret nature of the Prophet's hijrah and the precautions he took demonstrated his human insecurities. Okay, I, I know some, some Muslim scholars would say that the Prophet is always perfect and all that. We, granted, but I want to look at it from a human point of view. What he did showed his human insecurities. For example, I'll tell you this. He ordered Sayyidina Ali to sleep in his bed, in his space. He chose an unconventional route to Medina, a longer route, to knock off the people who were trying to, to, to ambush him. He took measures to wipe out their footsteps when leading to the cave. He sheltered his companion Obaka in the cave to hide from the pursuing enemy. All of this reveals his reliance to God, his humanity, but dependent on God at the same time. His employment of every human endeavor to achieve his goal. So in a similar fashion, I'm laying this groundwork for you because I want to show you that we are instructed to employ every measure possible to achieve our goal. Example, obedience to God and attainment of his pleasure. Yet this premise alone of the reward of Jannah is a motivating force to do better, to shun disobedience, to strive for God's pleasure, to hijrah. And to achieve this, I suggest a four-pronged approach. Okay, number one, intellectual development. I have noticed in social media, for example, how Muslims argue with each other, giving fatwas against one another, all falling short of adab in advising our fellow brothers and sisters in faith. Even sometimes, even in this channel, <laughs> under the comment section eventually, you know, I can see those threats. So my advice is study, study, study. Not from the internet alone, but through books, through teachers, through contemplation and deep thinking. Let the information that we gain be transformed to beneficial knowledge for us in this world and the hereafter. Okay, there, there are always proper ways to comment, to advise others, rather than hiding behind the cowardly and enormity of social media. So some of us, like, sometimes I feel like some of your comments like, it's not even a comment. You just like copy paste from the internet and then you just put there. Sometimes it's even irrelevant. So uh, what I'm saying is if you feel that you have a lot to say, open your own channel and talk about it. Don't hijack <laughs> other people's channels. I mean, it's like the adult one. I mean, the, the more you say irrelevant things, the more I know like this guy don't even know what he's talking about. That's why it's irrelevant. Okay. Why you need to copy and paste from another Google? I was like, <laughs> anyway, coming back. Remember this, if you are truly people of taqwa, we must always be afraid when being accounted for our speech and our deeds before Allah, even though we can hide from people in this world. Right? And Allah says in Surah Al-Zumar, chapter 29, verse 9, He says, Pull, tell them, say, Hal ladina ya'lamuna wa ladina la ya'lamun. Are those who know equal to those who don't know? albab. It is only men of understanding who will pay attention, who will pay heed. Second approach, spiritual development. Another thing, very important. And this is what we lack in this community. Intellectual, 
we lack. We just share Google. <laughs> Second, no spirit. Because why? We copy, copy, copy from Google. No spirit. Okay, there's, there's so much that intellectual can achieve for intellect can achieve for us. The balance must be struck between the intellect and the soul. Gentleness, forbearance, humility, grace, they all come from the heart. We must ensure that the demands of this world does not rob us from the only possession that no one can steal from us, our hearts. Okay? Therefore, always keep it healthy, keep it pure, keep it clean from diseases that affects it. For example, hasad, dengki, revenge, jealousy, backbiting, gossiping, sarcasm, anything negative that we can think of. Through our deeds, through our written words, through our speech, all of it. Just remember in the end, all our plots, all our plans will come to nothing when we die. The only question that we must constantly be able to face is a few. Number one, through Islam, have we found peace in our hearts? Calling with others, arguing with on social media, this is just reflects your state of ravishness in your heart, not peace. Another question to ask, have we found contentment in Allah? Because if you do, then everything's at peace. Even if someone scolds you, eh, I and Allah, good, everything good. You, not important, not good, so never mind. It's good. <laughs> and the way to do this, to always ask the third question, have we obeyed the Prophet Because the Prophet reminded us by saying in Sahih Bukhari Muslim, he says, beware, in the body there's the flesh. If it's sound, the whole body is sound, but if it's corrupt, the whole body is corrupt, and that, behold, it is the heart. So important to take care of the heart. The third, trying to achieve a perfectly balanced success. Now, one of the best things that attracted me to Islam, I mean, even as a born Muslim, as I study later on in life, is the way it navigates in a perfect balance between this world and the next. For example, a Muslim must be successful both in this world and the next. Unfortunately, sometimes we gear too much to the world or for some of us even, it's not healthier to gear too much to the hereafter at the expense of this world. Because this world is sort of like an experimental lab. If you don't succeed here, you can never succeed there. If you never experience Jannah in this world, the pleasure of it, you will never experience Jannah in the hereafter. Very important, that one. Okay? So Allah taught us a beautiful du'a in the Quran for us to recite. But I think most importantly, to always remind us that this is our objective in life. Rabbana, you all know this. Atina fit dunya hasana. Wa fil akhirati hasana. Waqina adhab al-nar. Our Lord, O Lord, give us goodness and success in this world and goodness and success in the hereafter and prevent us from the punishment of the hellfire. Surah Al-Baqarah. Okay, so furthermore, and this is another interesting thing if we study tafsir. In Surah Al-Fatiha, we recite, Ihdina Surah Al-Mustaqim. Right? So what does it mean? Ihdina Surah Al-Mustaqim. Lead us to the straight path. Lead us to the straight path. But I will tell you, that is not the literal meaning of it. Because Mustaqim comes from the word Istiqamah, meaning guide us to the path of steadfastness so that we remain on that path, on that straight path, not turning left or right, on the path that is guided, the path that is granted to those who in the previous verse talk about only Allah we worship, only Allah we seek help. To whom, to you whom, you know, and this is the path of those whom life is directed towards Allah and guided by Allah. 
Hence, we summarize it by saying straight path. It is not straight path, literally. But what I want to talk about more will be this, not only the meaning. You know, if you talk about Fatiha, <laughs> I can give one whole session about that. Tafsir is amazing. Huh? The, the Fatiha being the opening of the Quran, and some say, uh, you know, Fatiha is a sort of the summary of the whole message of the Quran. And then you have the verse, Ihdina Suratul Mustaqim, right in the middle of the surah. And this signifies that the straight path is truly the middle path. We can take a whole you know, session. So, yeah. yeah so this verse number four, and this is the one. Yeah. Right in the so middle. Three, the other two, three verses. Yeah. So what we can notice is that if the entire if the entire Quran is an explanation of this verse of this concept, the essence of being a Muslim is to follow the middle path, which is in effect this path of Surat Al Mustaqim. Amazingly beautiful. This message is central to the Islamic practice and is seen to be addressed in all aspects of our daily lives. So Allah confirms this. Again, again confirm this in another Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 140, in which he says, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطَى And thus we have made you a middle nation, a just nation, an ummah that is justly balanced. Verse 143, Surah Al-Baqarah. Right. So it's important that we not only study fake or sirah, but also climate change, geography, astronomy, mathematics, to be a middle path. That it's important for us to be at the top of a game at work, be a manager, be a director or something, whatever it is in your job, the, title, the, the, the scope of work. But you must also be on top of your duty and responsibility with Allah. Or reading and understanding the Quran, for example, or to wake up early for tahajid, for example, on top of your fatherly prayers. And the fourth and the last uh, prong approach I am suggesting would be to uplift our moral development. This becomes the main tenet or the outcome of all the things that you pray and the fasting and the zakat. This is the outcome. Okay, Life is hard. There's a lot of challenges. We are always juggling between the demands of home and work. We have to clean the house and cook meals for the family, but also complete the work project that was assigned to us at work. Then there's another dimension I want you to consider. As you spend 8 to 10 hours at work, how much time do you spend the balance of your day with Allah? On the prayer mat, reading and understanding the Quran with a tasbih. How many prayers out of five were we, the imam, leading our families? Where did we draw this line of balance? Okay. To make this more challenging, do we know who our neighbors are? how many children they have, where and what they study. Have, we take, have they taken their, their COVID-19 vaccinations? Have, do they have food at home when they come back home you know, from school? So I believe Prophet gave us advice regarding our relationship with others. He says in Sahih Bukhari, he says, the Muslim is the one from whose tongue and whose hands the other Muslims are safe. <laughs> that one only we fail. <laughs> who's from our tongue and our hands, other Muslims are safe. And my emigrant, the muhajir, is the one who abandons what Allah has forbidden. Do our friends or neighbors feel safe because they have a caring, concerned Muslim neighbor that they can depend on? Do we take care of their plants when they are away, for example? So, so you see, there are, there are many areas in which we can improve ourselves as a person. 
further accentuated by the fact of faith that we are Muslims. So ask ourselves, can we do better in the way we behave? In the way that we speak? In the way that we engage with social media? So that's one part. The other part, can we control further our need to talk? Do we always, do we always have to talk a lot? Just listen more. Lah. To comment on others, to gossip, to be sarcastic, to always have something to, to retort back, to always want to win. Right? Remember this important fact. When you behave better and you exercise restraint, you're not benefiting others. You are exercising jihad from engaging in things that do not benefit you in the hereafter. You are portraying a productive personality to others. You are projecting the spirit of your faith. And perhaps, inshallah, if you conduct yourself in this way, others will be attracted to it and embrace Islam instead of running away from you. <laughs> right? Yeah, so those are the things that... Uh, yeah, about the hijra. MashaAllah, thanks for sharing uh, such a deep and inspirational session today. Saifur Rahman, yeah. Um, is there, you know, anything special that you can do in Muharram? Okay, <clears throat> good question. And this is the, the practical part of, of it, right? Yeah. Um, Allah says in Surah Tawbah, uh, chapter 9 verse 36 the indicative meaning of which is indeed the number of months with Allah is 12 lunar months in the register of Allah from the day he created the heavens and the earth from the beginning this out of this four are sacred that is the correct religion so do not wrong yourself during them so we're gonna sort of unpack this a little bit so the four months that are sacred are Muharram Rajab Zulqaidah and Zulhijjah Okay, Muharram being the beginning, Rajab being the between Sha'ban and Ramadan, and then Zulqaidah, preparation for Hajj, and Zulhijjah is the passage towards Hajj and come back. So Ibn Kathir in his book Tafsir, he says, from among the months, Allah chose Ramadan and the sacred months. So venerate them which Allah has chosen for people of understanding and wisdom. Respect that which Allah chose. So essentially, if you ask me why is Muharram special, I just said, actually, you know, it's simply because Allah chose that to be special. It is His month. He commands us not to wrong ourselves during this sacred month, which means we must ensure that we have pure intentions and righteous behavior. So although many of us understand the importance of the month of Ramadan, we often neglect the other sacred months. But they have been specially selected by Allah so as the best times to sort of like get close to Him. Yeah, the word Muharram literally means forbidden. Linguistically, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It is so sacred that certain actions become forbidden in this month as they would violate the sanctity of that month. Both the month Muharram and Allah's house Masjidil Haram derive their names from the same root word Harama. H-R-M. <laughs> Both are sacred spaces in which Deed, good or bad, weighs heavier on the scales of Allah. So, as mentioned before, our deeds carry more weight during Muharram, just as they carry more weight if conducted around the precincts of the Kaaba. So, for example, if you pray in Masjid Haram, you get 100,000 times more reward than praying in any other mosque. Right? So, first, there's an opportunity to gain more reward every day, but also a danger of gaining more sins with our bad deeds. So, you need to be careful. That's why he says, do not hurt yourself. 
this means we should be extra vigilant when it comes to how we act, whether in a relationship, at work, you know, you know, worship, you know, time management, even how we take care of our health. With the right intention, so every single action can become an opportunity for the world. So how can we take advantage of the month of Muharram? Number one, simple stuff. And these are not just specifically for Muharram, these are just like general acts that, like I said, so that we can take advantage of this month. Number one, give more salams. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam. Yeah, dapat bahas, you get the reward already. Right? <laughs> so this, yeah, so simple. This is the greeting of the Prophet and the people of Jannah. Uh, you know, the Prophet said, you will not enter paradise until you believe and you will not believe until you love one another. Spread salam amongst you. Sahih Muslim. Right? In other hadith, narrated in Sunnah Abu Dawud, the Prophet said, when two Muslims meet each other and give salam and shake hands, they are forgiven their sins before they part from each other. So who should give salam first? Anyone. Ah, so let me see the Prophet said, the one who is closer to Allah, give salam first. Uh-huh. So there's always, you must always challenge, like I want to be the first, I want to be the first, I want to be the first. Right? So that, you know, both of you are engulfed in rewards. Number two, smile at everyone, even on your bad days. Mm-hmm. This simple action will weigh heavy on the scales during Muharram. The Prophet said, you cannot satisfy people with your wealth, but satisfy them with your smiles and good morals. From Hakim Al-Mustadra. Okay. Number three, give regular sadaqah. Muharram is the beginning of the Islamic New Year, so it's perfect time to make resolutions and establish good habits that you can reap the rewards later. So in hadith recorded in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim, the Prophet said, Protect yourself from the hellfire, even by giving a piece of date as charity. It doesn't matter what you give, as long as you give something. Even if it's just a, a, a penny, as you know, the intention is there. Especially during this period of lockdown, number four, you must improve your health. And I need to say this for the Muslims. <laughs> improve your health by eating better, exercising more, having a good sleeping routine. Don't, because of lockdown, everything go haywire. Right? Complain, 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 do nothing, eat, 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 and then sleep, 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 sleep. <laughs> yes, taking care of your health is a, something that can be rewarded because your body is a trust, amana, from Allah. Making it a few lesser changes can earn you rewards. So, Isunah Abu Dawud, the Prophet said, indeed, your own self has rights over you, indicating that our bodies are a trust, amana, that we hold on behalf of Allah and we should make an active effort to counteract the negative impact of a sedentary lifestyle. Number five, seek forgiveness. Since sins are heavier in Muharram, you should ask forgiveness as often as possible. In Shatul Baqarah, he says, Allah loves those who are constantly repentant. And he loves those who purify themselves. Number six, read more Quran. This is an obvious one that always is on my list. <laughs> right? But it's the perfect way to draw closer to Allah. doesn't matter what month. The best way to do this is to commit to just maybe 10 to 15 minutes a day. Like I used to say before in the other episodes, maybe after subuh, just sit down on the prayer mat, continue to read the Quran after your prayer. Because uh, during that period, you know, don't immediately fall asleep because that's where Angel Mikhail is moving around giving extra sustenance for the day. 
So don't sleep. So after your subuh, stay there at the zikir, read, do your prayer, you know, or read the Quran, or, or just sit there at your prayer mat for five, no, ten, fifteen minutes, and stay disciplined in that routine. Hopefully, just like any New Year's resolution, this become your habit. And I don't benefit from this, but you benefit from it. Okay, and these are not like I said specific uh, to Muharram only, but it makes sense to increase them during this month. But there are certain sunnah that we should we we can observe if you have the ability to, and this especially uh, on the day of Ashura. Usually Muharram is connected to Ashura. Ashura simply means the tenth, number ten. So it is a tenth of Ashura. So today in Singapore is a sixth of Muharram. Tenth would be. On Thursday, so it's it's nicely coinciding with the Sunnah fasting of Thursday, right? So it's highly recommended to fast as much as possible during Muharram. Um, you know, the Prophet said the best fasting after Ramadan is the sacred month of Allah, yani Muharram, Sahih Muslim. Okay, in fact, the sanctity of Muharram was so established that even the Quraysh in the days of Jahiliyyah used to fast on those days. One such day is day of Ashura the 10th of Muharram. So they do so as they celebrated the day in which Allah frees Nabi Musa from the bonds of Pharaoh. So in Sayyid Bukhari, Ibn Abbas reported that when the Prophet came to Medina, he saw the Jews fasting on Ashura. And so when he asked them why, and he said, this is the day, this is a righteous day, is the day in which Allah frees and saves the Bani Israel from the enemies, so Musa fasted on that day. So when the Prophet learned this, he said, but we have more right to Musa than you. So he also fasted on that day and he advised that if you fast on that day, try to fast either one day before and another one one day after. So you either fast 9th and 10th of Muharram or you fast 10th and 11th of Muharram to distinguish and differentiate between his Ummah and from the people of the book. Because if you claim that you have more right against Musa, we must do more. Okay, in Sahih Muslim, he said, fasting on the day of Ashura cleans the minor sins of your past year. And there's also some interesting story about Ashura. I mean, the authenticity may not be so solid, but it's interesting. Other narration speaks of the virtues of the Ashura. For example, on that day, Prophet Noah was saved from the flood in the ark. Nabi Yunus was taken out of the belly of the whale. Nabi Ayub or Job was cured from his extreme leprosy. Nabi Yusuf or Joseph was united with Nabi Yaqub. Uh, and Nabi Ibrahim was saved from the fire uh, set up by Nimrod. So these are the things that in other narrations say that this is the importance of Ashura. But for us, the, be- the, the, the be- barest thing we need to say is just because the Prophet fasts on that day and he enc- encourages us to fast one day before or one day after, that's why we do it. Okay, all right. Yes, so that's all about Muharram and uh, Hijrah. Yeah, I don't know if we have time for Hungry Ghost. No, Can Hungry Ghost not important. <laughs> Hungry Ghost what? Hungry Ghost not important. We learned so many beneficial things. I mean, oh, come okay. on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but maybe in the generic sense, uh, generic sense, how do Muslims, you know, view it? As, as close, you know, something like genes, um, we believe they exist, they're unseen. So, uh, in some sense, like, you know, give 
uh, non-Muslims, especially we have viewers who are non-Muslims out there who yeah. who might be interested to know what are the Muslims' view on this. Okay, so the Chinese calendar, the seventh month, is Hungry Ghost Month, right? Yeah. Uh, this year, the start of Hungry, Hungry Ghost Month, Subhanallah, yeah. coincided with the start of Muharram. <laughs> Yeah. So if you're Muslim, you're going to be very confused. I don't know which one, you know. So many Chinese consider this month to be unlucky. So people avoid starting new projects, getting married or, or whatever. So but for Muslims, these are not important, right? So uh, they believe that in this month, the souls of the dead have come from the afterlife and roaming the earth to visit their family members and descendants. They are in search of food and entertainment. So in normal days, pre-pandemic, you'll find a lot of food uh, being stored and then there will always be a Chinese opera. Right? That's for the entertainment. The origin is from ancient China. Right? It's about a monk named Mulian who asked the Buddha to help his mother in the afterlife. The Mulian's mother was very hungry, but because she's a ghost, she cannot eat. So the Buddha instructs Mulian to make offerings of food and new robes to the monks instead. And being thankful for the gift, the monks pray for Mulian's mother, and then she's reborn as human, ending her hunger. So in, in short, because we don't have time. But then, there is a distinction because usually in a part of the world, Taoist, Buddhists, they also mix. Sometimes they, even, they don't even know what they're doing. Right? For the Taoists, the highlight of the Hungry Ghost Festival is to appease wandering spirits and hungry ghosts who are released from hell. So they regard this month as inauspicious. On the contrary, the Buddhists celebrate the seventh lunar month as Ulambana. And uh, you know, we talk about this, right? it's kind of Ulambana or Yulanpan. I don't know whether the, the pronunciation is correct. <laughs> Yulan Pan. Yeah. yeah. So it's believed that to be a month of auspiciousness opposite from the Taoists, as is the time to honor the dearly departed by generating as much merits as possible to help them have a better rebirth. Uh, and the best rebirth for them will be to be a human. Okay, so what did he do? So just in Mulan's story, uh, they prepare elaborate uh, meals and offerings to these spirits. Uh, you know, to, to give them some soul food, uh, you know, and then they have Chinese operas. But interesting in Chinese operas, okay, Fidel, you remember this, huh? if there's something, if you like Chinese opera and you go for these things, do not sit on the first row. Never, I never see. <laughs> yeah, because the first row always left empty for these VIP ghosts. Hmm. Okay, hmm. people burn fake money so that they can transfer this. And nowadays, not only fake money, they, they make... Uh, uh, paper cars, paper boats, paper cell phones, anything that will give luxuries for. Yeah, iPhone. Cars, house, bungalow, something like, see, like, what? Wow, so intricate. So that they can, the ghosts can get these luxuries in the hellfire. So mm-hmm. Buddhists and Taoists often avoid wearing red because the ghosts would like to possess anyone wearing red. So red, red clothes are no no. So anyone, who, uh, everyone is so nice to insects because it could be the reincarnation of some of their family members. So they don't kill animals when they see them. There is some do's and don'ts. Um, mm-hmm. So how yeah, did this concept of ghosts come come about? That is something interesting we must talk about. Ghosts, okay? right? Mm. Yeah. So interestingly, historians study who study and catalog ghostly encounters across time will tell you that ghosts come in a range of shapes and forms. Okay, that's clear. Some appear in dreams, in expected places, and all that. What might explain such discrepancy of the different ghosts? And are some of these more likely to see ghosts than others? You know, some of your friends always see like they see ghosts, they see ghosts, and I, I've never seen one. So it turns out that religious background could play a role. 
Okay, Protestant Catholics and Muslims believe in a day of resurrection and judgment, in which the souls are directed to either Jannah, heaven, or hellfire. Right? The Catholics have an extra step; they have the purgatory, which is in the middle between hellfire and like sort of like you're not good enough to go there, you're not good enough to go here, so you kind of like pay your dues. Okay, the Buddhists and Hindus believe in a cycle of death and reincarnation. That's why you talk; they talk about the Buddhists talk about the ghosts giving good merits so they can be reborn better. Right. Uh, um, so uh, that's them. The Protestant are largely silent about the existence of ghosts. Catholic remains amenable to the existence of ghosts. Uh, that God may permit dead individuals to visit their counterparts on Earth, but the Church has traditionally condemned uh, occult activities like censors and yuja bots. Okay. Uh, in some regions like Voodoo. I also used to teach Buddhism in the university. Interesting that spirits and ghosts play a central role. Religions like Buddhism and Hinduism support a belief in ghosts, hence the Angry Ghost Festival. For Hindus, ghosts are the souls of individuals who suffered a violent death, and so they need death rituals. For Buddhists, ghosts are reincarnated individuals who may be sorting out their bad karma. The Jews deeply discourage occult activities. Muslims don't believe that dead people can return up as ghosts. So if a Muslim thinks that he's encountered a ghost, that should be the work of the jinn. Yeah, right? It contains a mix of spiritual and physical properties. Intentions can be good, can be bad, depending on the situation. Right? So in Islam, in, so we talk about jinn a little bit. Jinns are supernatural creatures, like genies, spirits, demons, found in Arabian and Islamic mythology and theology. In a hadith, in At-Tabari and Hakim, the Prophet said, there are three types of jinns. One type which flies in the air all the time. You can imagine uh, what these are. Let's not mention the names. <laughs> another type which exists as snakes and dogs. And another, and another type, the earthbound type, which rests, resides in one place and wanders about. Also, this one is familiar to, to, to most of us. Then the jinn may be further divided into two parts in relationship to their faith. One is a Muslim jinn and the other one non-Muslim jinn. And we know that Allah refers to jinn in the Quran in Surah Al-Jinn, chapter 72, 1 to 2. He says, Say, there's been revealed to me that a group of jinn listen and said, Verily, we have heard the marvelous Quran. It guides us to righteousness. We have believed in it and we will never make partners with our Lord. So they declared their shahada in front of the Prophet. And if you go to Mecca, nearby to Majil Haram, there is a mosque called the Mosque of the Jinns. And this was where this event was happening. The whole jinns were there, the Prophet was there, and then they took shahada with the Prophet. Then you have the jinns who are not Muslims, non-believers. The disbelievers among the jinns are referred to by various names in Arabic. Example, Ifrit, Shaitan, Karin, Demons, Devil, Spirits, Ghosts. So we're going to talk about this. We, we can have a long time to talk about you know, economy of time. We're just going to you know, skip them. What they do is they try to misguide men in various ways. Whoever listens to them, and this is the serious part, this is something you need to take care of. If we listen to them and we work for them, then we are referred to as the human shaitan. I'm not saying, I'm not saying this. Allah says in Surah Al-A'am, chapter 6, verse 112, he says, Likewise, we have made for every prophet an enemy. Shaitans from among mankind while jinn and from the jinn. So there are shaitans from mankind. Allah has declared it. Okay? So the, the Quran has even devoted a whole chapter on, in Surah Jinn, chapter 72. The literal meaning of this jinn comes from the word Jannah or Yajunnu. 
okay, which means to cover, hide, or conceal. They are named jinn because they are hidden from the eyes of mankind. And there's a reason why this is so. The only person who can control them, who can control them in the story of prophets? Sulaiman. Excellent, Sulaiman. No one else is allowed to control jinn and no one else can. Allah says, Wa hushra li Sulaiman and gathered for Sulaiman in Surah An-Namal, chapter 37, verse 17. Junuduhu minal jinn. The soldiers which are jinns, while ins of mankind and wattair of birds. Fahum yurja'un and they were marching in rows. So only Nabi Sulaiman has the ability to control the jinns, mankind and birds. And sometimes you see that Muslims, in order to like to fight against against all these spirits, they use amulets, charms, magical arrangements of words or figures. Sometimes bomo, dukun, and sometimes they use even some parts of the Quran, but they change a little bit, and which is like haram for us. Incantations, exorcism. These are something that is common in the Muslim world. In some parts of the Sahara, diviners throw ritual objects put from a bag and make divinations based on how close the subjects fall to one another. The ritual items included dry human intestines and the body of a murdered child. So we see this even in like uh, ancient practices of like, you know, you, you know, 300, the movie, you mm-hmm. see the uh, Leonardo's actually went and, and, and seek guidance and all that from the Kahins and, you know, this are what we call Yeah. Hannah, the seemingly innocent thing that you see in every... Uh, uh, henna, henna, Mary. yeah. You know Wedding. the origin of henna is to offer protection against evil spirits, and it's used henna. to stain parts of the body. So the 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 genes look at it like hey, not nice at the one, or some are worded in such a way that it becomes an amulet on itself on the body. Oh, I so didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That's what Thai boxes too do, right? Uh, do too, right? Thai boxes they tattoo like certain. Yeah. So the ties, not only boxes, but ties generally, you yeah. see that they do a lot of tattoos and those are actually prayers, incantations. And it's, it's not, that's why, that's why in the Thai world, the, a lot of them uh, have tattoos. Some, they're not like, like Singaporeans or Americans who have tattoos because it's cool. You have cage, la, what nonsense, nonsense, like, you know, write our girlfriend's name on it or whatever. This is not, this is actually religious according to the Buddhist uh, scriptures. And then the most famous one, if you go traveling in Turkey, what do you find? The, eye the evil eye. The, the evil eye, the, the, the amulet, the blue and white thing. Yeah. Right? So yeah. this it comes uh, on rings, pendants, necklaces, bracelets, in any forms that you, know, you, you can find them. So the question I want to ask is, can we do this? Can we do what? Since no. everybody is doing these sort of things, can we do no, this? My, my, my guardian thinks us no, but... Mm. But... It's a difficult, answer to, it's a difficult <laughs> question to answer. Right, because it varies from person to person, from family to family, from one culture back, cultural background to another. So it becomes very sensitive for me to say just no or can or whatever, you know. But I will attempt to deal with it from a broad perspective and the very basic tools of faith. So that's why I said your foundation must be good, must be strong, because if you, that is strong, you can deal with most things in life. Okay, in answering this question. Let me go through a series of questions with you and hopefully in answering these questions, you can find your answer. Ready? Okay. Yeah? On your mic, yeah? Number one, these jinns, are they creations of Allah? Yes. yes. Good. Because they are, must they obey the will of Allah? Yes. They must. 
Okay, because they are creations of Allah by using these amulets or, or, or some archaic rituals we mentioned earlier in overcoming them. Where have you placed Allah in this process? Secondary. Secondary. Already a big problem, right? Shirik. Yes. Right? Have you sought for Allah's protection instead than going through these black magics and whatever? So that's the question. So you know your answer already, right? Last question. Okay, last question. If you were walking home, okay, in this hungry ghost month, and suddenly you saw a ghostly apparition, Okay, I asked uh, ask the Angmo uh, Iskandar first. Because Angmo. the Asians all believe in all of this. Fidel's also like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> As a man of faith, huh, Iskandar, yeah. what would you do if you see this ghostly apparition? I want to would recite... you run away and scream for help? I should probably recite a certain surah. Alhamdulillah, surah. I've done my job today. <laughs> right? <laughs> you, you see all these things and like, you, you're scared, you run away and then you go and see uh, Bomo or whatever like you said. You know, mm. uh, why aren't you being a man of faith? Why don't you seek Allah? As you have answered the questions, your creation of Allah, they must obey Allah. So go back to the Quran, go back to whatever Allah has taught us, the Prophet has taught us, and, mm. and use that. You know what's surprising though? Mm. I don't know if it's surprising. Yeah. I dream of stuff like that before. And uh, when I was being chased by whatever thing that is, I started to recite. Uh, the three goals and the uh, yeah. and I woke up and I woke up it, it's uh. like half half in a dream out you know I'm still reciting my mouth <laughs> oh, so that one like, is uh, the half half uh, is uh, you feeling feeling only you feeling actually, feeling. when you wake up you wake up already lah <laughs> you know as in, as in the dream right, but I was your, reciting but the dream yeah, direct uh, indicated correctly how you should respond minimum the three goals mm-hmm. at Kursi those are the things nothing magical in Islam These are the mm. things that you're familiar with. It's easy. But if you don't recite them now in good times, if you see those things, you cannot have the courage to say it. Okay, mm. in Islam, you know, like, you know, sort of, and this, no? there, 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 there are always options to do things. So for example, if I go to the toilet, I can walk with my right leg or whatever. But, you know, uh, you know I want to follow the proper sunnah and be blessed by the blessing of the sunnah. I enter with my left leg. Right? So there's always a choice. Similarly, as a Muslim, I can choose to venture in these spooky activities, think a lot about them. I, you know, even I, when I was younger, we like to go to like a haunted house and all that. I mean, sure, I'm sure you have. I've yeah, done I a have. lot of these things, right? Hey, there's this haunted. Okay, okay, let's go, let's go and see. Never see anything. You know? So in the end, you only scare yourself. Right? So, or, you know, or I can do that or I can be a productive Muslim and concentrate on my physical life. By doing what I need to do, for example, read the Quran, pray tahajjud, perform charity. You notice my my thread of my answers are always the same because it's the only way, it's a safe way, and leave those things that should not impact me to their own devices. For example, dealing with the jinns. The fact mm. remains, and you must remember this: the very basic principle is that Allah puts a veil between this physical world with that spiritual world for a purpose. So don't kepo kepo a busybody. You want to enter into the realm. You want to be able to have access, dude. You pray properly first lah. You wake up at four o'clock in the morning first lah. You have fal the Quran first lah. Then you kepo kepo. All these things you're supposed to do, don't want to do. You want to do all this nonsense, nonsense stuff, hmm. right? The truth is, and you and I know, we can't even manage our physical world and life properly. We can't even manage to do what we need to be done to be get closer to Allah. We not we have not even assimilated the sunnahs of a beloved prophet into our lives. Then why, 
why bother and why scare yourself with what is not beneficial to you? Or even be destructive to your fragile and short life. Pay more attention to what is real that you can control, that you can do something about. Leave those things that you cannot see, cannot know till the hereafter. Mm-hmm. Until you be gathered. So you really want to know ghosts? Yeah, don't worry. On the day of judgment, you might be standing beside one. Okay, get to know him or her. On the day of Actually, judgment. This- Sorry, this one is very uh interesting, curious to ask because mm. uh there was once hungry ghost falls on Ramadan mm. and people say you know Ramadan the ghosts are all chained up then how come yeah. you know during hungry ghost is that time people can see the ghosts came out <laughs> so so that that actually is the best studying platform because do you want to accept the Islamic version of cement of faith that the the, the jeans are all being tied up in hellfire or do you want to accept Uh, example, other belief system that talks about the genes are being released. Right? So the answer is quite simple uh, for most of us who believe. The answer is like, uh, these are all just imagination. So what do you do during Hang- Hungry Ghost Month or Festival? Let them do what they need to do based on their faith. Okay? We do what we need to do based on our faith. Naturally, by Sharia, It's not permissible for us to celebrate and participate in this festivity because it involves faith, belief, uh, religious rituals. If you refuse to go out this month because you're scared you may meet ghosts along the way, let me tell you this, huh? <laughs> which may even be more scary. The jinns are hovering around you all the time. It doesn't need to be the seventh month to hang out with you. You understand this? Like Even now, there are jinns in your room that you cannot see. But because their jeans, they're covered, they're concealed. Allah wants to conceal them. There's a veil. So let them do what, what they do. You do what you do. But what if sometimes someone say, Alamak, I go out and then I saw ghosts. If you see a ghostly apparition, maybe, just maybe. <laughs> I'm just going to joke a little bit. Huh? Maybe you just saw yourself. <laughs> and, you be more, and you should be scared of it. So don't overthink. Don't, in Malaysia, shok sendiri lah, you know. And imagine things which are not true. Live life naturally and don't be curtailed because it is the Hungry Ghost Festival. But I just want to leave with one advice. Just because you don't believe and don't participate, Islam has some guidelines how you deal with it. Be respectful of their choice and don't mock or ridicule them. Because on the day of Yamal Qiyamah, Allah will inform us who is right and who is wrong. And that's all that matters. Yusuf Al-An'am, chapter 6, is verse 8. I'll say, Wala... Do not insult them for those who invoke others than Allah. Because they might incite Allah without knowledge. And Allah ends that verse, verse 108 in Surah Al-An'am by saying, Thumma ila rabbihim marja'ahum Then to their Lord is their return. And Allah will inform who is right and who is wrong what they used to do. Mm. Subhanallah. It's already, it's already settled. Allah, the, Allah already explained. So don't engage in things which are not productive. So that's sort of cover it lah. I mean, I mean, what I'm impressed with is this verse from the Quran also because coming from a past uh, faith as a Christian, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, maybe not from Catholicism, but uh, there was a period of time when you have Christians, people that I know, like when they see the Chinese prayer, like they it was in the news once they kicked the they kicked the praying thing because they said no lah, no, there's no ghost, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which was yeah. quite uh, disrespectful for them uh, yeah. when they did that. So um, I'm impressed with Islam for with this verse because it manages the believers. Uh, kind of like fiery spirit, you know, how to say it. Like mm-hmm. our, just because we are right or something, you know, then we we might do something wrong. And this mm-hmm. verse is helping us to ma- ma- mitigate that. And I'm impressed yeah. with that, that to see that it's in Islam. Yeah, because this is the spirit of Islam, right? I mean, you, you believe, right? you, you know, yeah. you do what you do, I, they do what they do. At the end of the day, why you quarrel? Because you, you know, you have the absolute truth with you. And you quarrel, it doesn't make any sense because you are not the creator of all of this. When you, we all return to our creator, Allah will just tell them what you have done. Right or wrong. That's the best judge. You and I, just do what we need to do. Don't bother and don't, don't, let, don't judge others. Don't let others judge you. That's it. That's mm-hmm. a, the path of a peaceful existence, particularly when you live with different uh, you know, uh, faith and races. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, there was a question in the in the comments, mm. or they were talking about uh, eating the consecrated fruits of. Uh, so during hunger ghost festivals, they leave uh, offerings of food, mm. and some people ate that food. And I was wondering whether whether that's even whether it's allowed because yeah. I don't know if it's technically been offered to another deity yeah. or another god. Uh, I don't know. Just so, wondering. So the, the answer to the question is number one: Are you that hungry? Are you that poor that you need to eat a food that was <laughs> left behind under the tree along the road? Well, someone says he was the hungry ghost when they <laughs> when they offered. He's, he's the hungry one, not a ghost. Yes. You know, if he's a ghost, he wouldn't be in our realm talking about this, asking this question. So, so again, don't shock Sneri. So the the point is: Are you that hungry? If you're hungry, is there a better way in which you can consume a food rather than the food that's been left uh, to the elements along along the road under the tree? Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, there are issues with the fact of eating those things. Yes, some of us uh, theoretically will say that it is halal and then, you know, because it's usually cakes and all that, right? Sweets. So right. we can just eat and to, to, to prove the fact that, you know, the, the ghosts are not eating, but, you know, it's something that we eat. And so essentially like kind of mocking the whole experiment and the whole experience. So the thing is this. The reason why we eat halal food is because it has been consecrated, it has been done and offered in the name of Allah, and therefore it makes it halal. This food, although by nature they are halal, they have been offered for something that is not halal. They have been offered to something that is against faith. You know, so so I, I wouldn't eat it. If I'm so hungry, I'll go to my neighbor and maybe ask for something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because it is some, it's an offering to, to something that's for, for Muslims which is shirik. Right? right, so to partake in it is should be avoided, lah. Okay, but of course, by in essence, whatever that's offered, because usually they're vegetarian, right? Yeah, by essence, you can eat it, but because it has been offered to a god that we don't subscribe to, and therefore a shirik, so we avoid it. Right, just how I would mm-hmm. respond to it. Yeah, also, when, I, when you're eating these things, are you? Indirectly mocking uh, and and cl- clashing 
with the people who actually do this, you know, these are other implications that are equally important because Allah says do not do that because they might ridicule Allah instead. Right. Yeah. Okay. You I, mean, I really, uh, even uh, even for Chinese, I mean, yeah. be, my, my grandma's side is uh, probably a mix of Buddhist, Taoist kind of uh, yeah. practices. That's the, usually what in Singapore is, yeah. The, the funeral, they have even dubbed I mean, not not funeral. Yeah. It's after my grandma passed away, they still have duck offerings like roast duck mm. or braised duck. But after that, we can kind of eat it, you know. That's time, uh. mm. like in the in the family. After you know, it's like done really offerings. Then you can eat, it, you know. <laughs> so yeah. so so I mean, I didn't think much about it at that time until you know became Muslim and I know more about it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, at that time you're not Muslim, so whatever that's permissible in those paradigm of your faith you can mm-hmm. if you they allow you to do it and you do it it's, it's okay like i said the essence of the food in essence like we were talking about is halal in nature in that sense right so literally you can eat but because of faith we we're not doing it now okay yeah okay. Okay. if you have ever eaten it's fine you're not going to go to hell trust me you're not going to go to hellfire for it <laughs> you know i know some ustaz always say, "Kena makan kotor lah." Then must fast for forty days lah, whatever, whatever. All these things have nothing in Islam. Like, it's all cultural. So don't worry about it. Just like uh, say istighfar. Or, I didn't know, and now I know better. Okay. Mm. Go to a Muslim family, ask them for help, ask them for food. I know these are the times which are very difficult, and I see our, our neighbors up north and all that they're going through a really difficult time if you if you cannot afford it us because Allah has made us Khalifa and if we have extra it is our duty because we represent Allah to share the rescue Allah has given one family with someone else who's, who's not if you are in this if you're really in a desperate state do not be embarrassed because this is just with humankind it's nothing but be embarrassed with Allah so if you need it ask if they cannot give you don't give up go to the next house and ask okay because if you're in that state you're allowed to ask to survive in order to live a righteous life and there is a better way for you to consume mm-hmm. and we hope and we pray to Allah SWT that none of us have to go through this but if you do may Allah give us ways in which he will replace and he will send Khalifa to assist us in order for us to be alleviated from this situation inshallah inshallah I mean thank you so much Saifur Rahman for tonight uh, sharing I know we uh, have a long session tonight um, one you always make do up for last <laughs> make up for last week like, technically right, you know <laughs> uh, but I think I hope you guys uh, benefited a lot from tonight okay my hair is a bit out so Cause, you know, Someone says uh, they like your kufi tonight. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like the way Shahrod's wearing the kufi. Okay. Don't be ashamed, Okay. Um, but uh, thank you so much for tuning tonight. Next week we'll have a revert story in Shalwar, and uh, thank you so much for the sharing, Saifur Rahman. Maybe we shall end with Tasbih Kafara and Surah Tuhan. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika Ashadu ala ilahi ila anta Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilai Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Wa al-asq Inna al-insana lafi khusr Ila al-ladhina amanu Wa amanu salihati Wa tawasa bil-haq Wa tawasa bil-sabur Sadaqallahu azim Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Have a good new year 
have good resolutions for the year and try to implement more good deeds within this month and for the following months inshallah inshallah i mean so uh, thank you so much everyone for tuning in again and uh, we hope to see you in next week as well inshallah assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Waalaikumsalam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh <laughs>